The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. You know, I appreciate these guys. Bobby and I, it's been uh, about six weeks since we've been on stage together. Somebody asked if we broke up. We did, actually. <laughs> but I guess we're back together for a while. So, you know, I appreciate these guys and the work they do week after week. Amen? Appreciate that. Uh, men, we're, we're trying to prepare, and when the school year starts, we increase by about 20%. So uh, the empty seats here fill, our college students come back, and uh, we need additional men and women to help usher. So if you take a look in the bulletin you received, we need some additional help in that area. Guys, if I were a man, I would encourage my wife to go to girls' night out, stay home, keep the kids for a night, and let her come and meet the gals. Amen, ladies? Ladies? Wow, there you go. Okay. Ecclesiastes chapter 4, by the way, we celebrate our freedom this weekend. We're grateful for our nation and all that God has done to provide us with a place to be. Terry, my thing is, uh, there we go. There we go. Ecclesiastes chapter 4, when life's not fair, beginning in verse 1. Let's do something a little different. Would you stand as I read from God's Word? Beginning Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verse 1. Solomon writes, Again I looked and saw all the oppression that was taking place under the sun. I saw the tears of the oppressed, and they have no comforter. Power was on the side of their oppressors, and they have no comforter. And I declared that the dead who had already died are happier than the living who are still alive. But better than both is the one who's never been born, who has not seen all the evil that is done under the sun. Pretty encouraging passage so far, isn't it? Solomon says, uh, man, better not to be born than to be born and see all the evil in the world. Then he goes on and he says, I saw all the toil and achievement that spring from one person's envy of another. This too is meaningless in chasing after the wind. Fools fold their hands and ruin themselves. Better one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. Again, I saw something meaningless and under the sun. There was a man who was all alone. He had neither son nor brother. There was no end to his toil, yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. For whom am I toiling, he asked, and why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? This, too, is meaningless, a miserable business. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. If either of them falls down, one can help the other up. But pity anyone who falls and has no one to help them up. Also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one keep warm if he's alone? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not easily broken. Better a poor but wise youth than an old foolish king who no longer heeds the warnings that are given to him. The youth may have come from prison to the kingship or may have been born in poverty within his kingdom. I saw that all who lived and all who walked under the sun followed the youth, the king's successor. There was no end to all the people who were before them. But those who came later were not pleased with the successor. This too is meaningless, chasing after the wind. Father, as we look at this passage that uh, is written through a bleak time in Solomon's life, as we look when life is not fair around us, God, I pray that you would teach us where to look to find goodness. In your son's name, amen. You may be seated. If you hop online or read the news, it's easy to conclude that life is not fair, bad guys win, innocent lives are destroyed, and bad things happen to godly people. Would you agree with that? 
I mean, it's pretty easy. Just read the headlines, just hop online, just watch the news, and and you can see that life's not fair. Bad guys often win. Innocent lives are destroyed. Bad things happen to godly people. Policemen are killed protecting us. Spouses cheat. Bosses lie. Kids go to school never to return because they're shot. Prodigals don't come home. Friends reject friends. And the cancer kills. Life is not fair. Bad guys often win. Innocent lives are destroyed. Bad things happen to godly people. Another exciting Sunday at Temple Bible Church. I mean, really, this section of Ecclesiastes is a section where Solomon looks under the sun and doesn't come up for air. As you've heard us preaching through Ecclesiastes this summer, we said Ecclesiastes is like gone through a dark tunnel where it's darkness, 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 then a shaft of life, and then you return to darkness. Almost all of this section is darkness. Almost all of chapter 4 is darkness. In fact, there aren't many solutions given by Solomon here. We have to draw our own conclusions and come up with our own solutions. Someone has said Solomon is disillusioned with life, looking for answers, and doesn't find them in chapter 4. He observes the world. He decides it's unfair. He decides it's not a good place to be. And he decides it's better to be dead or not even born than to live in the world we're in. He's disillusioned. He is a pessimist and a cynic. I mean, really, when you look at this section, he is pessimistic and he's cynical. Anybody out there admit that they're cynical? Anybody? A couple of cynics out there. What about pessimists? Any pessimists out there? See the half-empty glass? Three of you? Yeah, Gary. Yeah. How many of you are married to a pessimist or a cynic? There you go. Now we'll get honest. There we go. Got a few honest people out there. Now, you raised your hand in front of the pastor. You're going to get it today at home. Wait. A pessimist is one who, when given the choice of two evils, chooses both. That's a pessimist. I mean, the pessimist sees life that way, and it's a struggle. I heard a story about two farmers. One was the eternal optimist. The other was the eternal pessimist. The the optimist would get up and greet each day with a uh, good morning, and the other guy would greet it with a heavy sigh. The happy, optimistic farmer would see his neighbor coming, and he would look up at the bright, sunshiny sky and say, look at what a beautiful, sun, sunshiny, sky, sunshiny day the Lord has given us. And the, the negative neighbor would frown and say, yeah, it will probably scorch our crops. And the optimistic farmer on the days it was raining uh, would say, ain't it great that God is warding our corn for us and giving them a drink today? And the negative neighbor would say, yeah, but if it doesn't stop before long, it'll flood and wash everything away and we'll lose it all. One day the optimist decided he would teach the pessimist a lesson. And so he went out and found a bird dog, and he found the brightest, most expensive bird dog he could find. He trained him to do other things that no dog on earth could do, impossible feats that would surely astound his neighbor. And so he took his neighbor duck hunting. They sat in the boat, hidden in the duck blind, or they sat in a duck blind, and, and ducks finally came in. Both men fired, and a number of ducks came down from the sky. And the, the, the optimistic neighbor turned to his dog and said, get him. And the dog stepped out and walked on the water and began picking up birds. He picked up bird after bird after bird, and then he walked back to the blind on the top of the water. And the optimistic neighbor looked at him and said, did you see that? What do you think of it? And the pessimist said, can't swim a lick, Kenny." Pessimist. That's Solomon. 
Solomon is looking at life through an under-the-sun mentality. That word occurs 28 times in the book of Ecclesiastes. If you have ever wanted to throw your hands up in despair, if you've ever wanted to, to check out and go live in the mountains or in an uninhabited Caribbean island, if you've ever fretted and worried about the world what the world's coming to, <clears throat> you're going to enjoy Ecclesiastes chapter 4. Because in this section, Solomon says the world's a terrible place and it's better if we never inhabit it. The, the world is awful. The, the world is unjust. The world is unfair. And he's going to give a couple of solutions, but not many. He's going to give us four problems. He's going to talk about four different problems in this section. And then two times he'll offer kind of a solution. We'll have to draw our own conclusions. The first problem, he says, men are oppressed. Men are oppressed. If you look at verse 1, he says, I, I looked at the acts of oppression that were being done under the sun, underlying the words under the sun. Solomon's perspective is limited. He doesn't go beyond the heavens. He's looking at the world around him. Perhaps he's looking at other kingdoms. He's looking at other nations. He's looking at other cities. Maybe he's looking at Israel, over which he is king. Maybe he's looking at the capital of Jerusalem, where he lives. And maybe he looks and he doesn't do a single thing about it, even though he's king with power. He just observes and says, life is bad. People are oppressed. The powerful rule over the, uh, those who are not powerful. And nobody is there to comfort those who are being oppressed. The world around us is jacked up. It's messed up. It's an awful place. It's a terrible place. People are pressed, and nobody does anything about it. I, I want to say, Solomon, why don't you do something about it? I mean, you're the king. But in this under-the-sun mentality, Solomon does absolutely nothing. It's as though he's saying, I see the problem, and then he does nothing to deal with it. You know, there are many kinds of oppression in our world. We've seen oppression in great ways in the last century. I mean, <clears throat> oppression in every place you can imagine. We watched the Holocaust and saw what, what, what a political oppression can do when people come into position with power. We, we saw Rwanda, where several of us have been multiple times, and, and see what political oppression can do when tribe turns against tribe and brother against brother. We, we've seen that type of oppression. We have seen racial oppression in our own nation. We've seen it over and over and over again, and, and it still exists in many places. We have seen gender oppression. It occurs right now in the world we live in, especially for you ladies, where you are considered less than in many, many nations that exist. We have seen economic poverty, even economic oppression, and it's terrible to see what takes place in the world we're in. Some of the places that I've had the privilege to go to and minister on your behalf, like refugee camps. Where, where it's terrible. The average person in our world in 2012, not 13, but 2012, the average income across our world was $1,225. That's it, annually. In, in the world that we live in, in 2012, the average income was $1,225. That's about $5,000 for a family of four. That's less than $500 a month. It's amazing. That's the world we live in. We are the haves. There are a lot of have-nots in our world. There's oppression everywhere. And, and we look at oppression, and sometimes we shrug our shoulders and say, well, it is what it is. There is spiritual oppression, religious oppression. Christians, there's an open season on Christians right now. How many of you know the story of this lady? 
Her, her name is Miriam Ephraim. She lived in Sudan. She was placed basically on death row in Sudan because of her belief in Jesus. She, she was uh, allowed to leave the country just about two weeks ago, but she spent time because of her faith in Christ waiting to be executed and waiting to be a Christian martyr. Just Google up what's happening in Nigeria, what's happening in Sudan, what's happening in Pakistan right now, and you'll see the most persecuted, the most oppressed people in our world today are those who place their faith in Jesus. We live in a time of great oppression, economic, political, gender, racial, religious oppression. Solomon looks out and he says, I I, I despair because the powerful oppress the powerless and there's no one there to comfort them. That's what he says in verse 1. You know, when I read that verse, my mind quickly raced back to Russia and the Ukraine in the early 1900s, uh, 1990s rather. The, the fall of the Iron Curtain was 1989. We had the privilege to go for the first time to Moscow and eventually to our sister church in Ukraine. By the way, you prayed for Pavel, the pastor of our sister church last week. He's doing better, found out he had a massive infection uh, where they did a biopsy, and he's doing much better this week. I Skyped and talked to him just uh, on Friday, so continue to pray for him. He still has surgery for a tumor that is non-malignant that will come out hopefully this next week. But in the early 1990s, we went to the Ukraine and Russia for the first time, and we saw people who had been oppressed for decades. For decades they've been oppressed. And the result is you get on a subway or a trolley bus, no one looked at one another, no one spoke to one another. It was complete silence the entire time. There was no laughter. Kids did not run around joking with friends. It was deathly silence because the oppression of all those decades made them a suspicious people, a fearful people, a closed people, a guarded people, a serious people. We did some crusades early on. We'd have literally dozens of people come to receive Christ as Savior. We gave them cards to fill out their names, addresses, and phone numbers so we could follow up. The vast majority refused to fill out those cards because under communism, you didn't give your information away because you were fearful that the KGB or someone else would come to find you. And so we'd get cards with no names, no numbers, no nothing on it. Fearful, oppressed People By God's grace, that's changing. But Solomon says, I looked around, that's what I saw. So in verse 2, he said, I congratulated the dead who are already dead more than the living who are alive, and I concluded it's better off if somebody was not even born. Wow. He makes Debbie Downer look like an optimist. You know Murphy and Murphy's Laws? He makes Murphy look like an optimist. I mean, Solomon says, I look around, and all I see is bleakness and depression and despair. Reminds me of Jeremiah. In the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah says, Why did I ever come out of the womb to see trouble and sorrow and to end my days in shame? says, I look at the world, and it is a mess. It's a mess. And as I look at it, it's just, I hopped online today just to look at the news to see exactly what was taking place in our world. You go to Indianapolis where seven people were shot on Friday night celebrating the 4th of July. It's an area where people went bar to bar to bar. These are young people, much like the young people that sit in this church, and somebody opened fire. They still haven't caught who it did. There was a boat wreck in in Florida, I think four people were killed. They're still looking for one. Uh, there was a shooting in Houston. You saw that. There was a fire in Philadelphia. I think seven or nine children lost their lives. That's just the headlines. I didn't even read them. We received a call as soon as we came back to town. Some of our dear friends here uh, called us, and uh, we went to see them. Their son, who lives out of state, uh, was with a group of people. 
uh, and uh, he and his wife were with a group of people. They were out at the lake. One of the kids got on a uh, mat, and he was drifting out in the lake, got too far. So our friend, uh, our friend's son who grew up here at TBC jumps on a jet ski to go uh, rescue this guy on the mat. When he got there, the kid pulled up on the jet ski. Somehow he tipped the jet ski over. Not sure what happened after that, but uh, the young man who was on the mat never surfaced, and they found his body an hour later. Life is unfair. It's bleak at times. It's depressing at times. You struggle at times. That's what Solomon's saying. So it's just a mess out there. It's jacked up. It's a mess. And we look at this mess and we say, what do we do? Well, interesting, in this particular section, Solomon gives no solutions. No solutions. It's an under-the-sun mentality. He's not looking beyond the heavens. He's not saying, hey, here's how you resolve this. He just says, I looked around and my conclusion is it's better off never to be born. Wow. How'd you like to be friends with Solomon? You want to go to coffee with Solomon? Solomon's meeting at Starbucks at 2 o'clock. I mean, really? You want to go to dinner with Solomon with this attitude and this mindset? You know, we have to look for solutions to situations like this, and the realization is the only solution to man's evil against man is a Savior. That's it. Education is important, and we certainly want to educate people, and economics are important. We certainly want to give people jobs, and equality is important, and we certainly do not deny the need for equality, and we do need to be colorblind. But here's the reality. The only solution to evil, injustice, and oppression is to tell people about Jesus. Because apart from him, it continues. So Solomon says, here's another problem. I, I looked out and I saw that men are rivals and they struggle with compulsions. And look at what he says in verse 4. I, I've seen that every labor and every skill that's done is a result of rivalry between a man and his neighbor. This too is vanity and striving after the wind. Solomon says, I, I looked out and I realized men are competitive. Men are always fighting other men. Men see themselves as rivals. They're, they're trying to climb the ladder ahead of, ahead of other men. They're trying to get ahead of other people. And this isn't just men, the gender men, but this is mankind in general. He says, I, I looked out, and, and it's a problem. He says, they're competitive. How many of you ladies recognize that your husband is fairly competitive? Let me see your hands out there. First hand that goes up right here. Nobody else? I didn't see another woman out there? Raise your hands. Is your husband competitive? I mean, it's amazing. When our kids were little, uh, they used to like to play a card game called Uno. You guys know how to play Uno? I, I, I mean, we'd play Uno. If there's anything that drives me crazy, it, it, it's it's... It, it's, it's not winning or losing, but it's a person that doesn't care if you win or lose. You know what I mean? So we play Uno with the kids, and for Bev, playing a game is a bonding experience. For me, it's an opportunity to win. I mean, our kid's 10, 11, 12 years old. I mean, what are you going to do? As a guy, you can sit there, and so, so I get to draw four, and I'm going to lay it on my kids. Bam, right there. Like, I mean, they're playing the game. They deserve to be beat like anybody else, right? But Bev, she waits until it reverses and comes around my way, and she holds on to those cards. If there's a skip in her hand, she's not going to lay it on her kid. She's going to lay it on me. If there's a draw four, she's going to lay it on We'd play Uno and have to go for marriage counseling the next week every time. And Solomon says, I, I, looked, I go play disc golf with dudes, and somebody says, you enjoy the fellowship? Yeah, I enjoy the fellowship, but I enjoy it more when I beat them into submission. Competitive. 
Fortunately, God has tamed that down some. Can you tell? But he says, that's what man is like. That's what we're like. And he says, uh, the problem with that, the problem with that is we struggle with all these compulsions. We struggle to get ahead or other stuff. Solomon's watching people and he says, you know, I, I see the envy that exists out there. A, a man looks and uh, he's got a rivalry between him and his neighbor. Solomon is basically saying we're filled with envy. It's by no accident that the Tenth Commandment is do not covet. I mean, we're envious. We want what other people have. We desire what they have. We want what they have. We want to go where they go and do what they do and accomplish what they accomplish. One author says, how do you feel when, someone, when one of your close friends succeeds? Do you rejoice or do you become jealous? When your colleague's grant is funded and your project is funded and yours is not. When your friends go on vacation and you're left out. When everyone goes out on a date and you're still in the apartment. When she loses 20 pounds and you gain 10, how do you feel? <laughs> Can you relate? A little envy? A little jealousy? And Solomon's saying, I look at this and realize that's the way we are. We are wired that way. I recognize when I turn green with envy that I'm ripe for trouble. And we've got to be careful. I mean, we've all coveted things. Early on, you've heard the story when we were in a house we're in before, I coveted a sprinkler system. Man, we didn't, it was, I had nine stations with hoses. Can you relate to that? Nine different places. It took me half a day to water my yard. And I'm convinced every time I backed out of my driveway, my neighbor would go in his garage and put his sprinkler system on. And so we saved and we saved and we saved and finally we bought a sprinkler system. Was that enough? Think I never wanted anything else in life after that? Got my sprinkler system. I'm happy. I mean, like a tick on a vein, right? Just happy as can be. Wrong. See, I found out there are different kinds of sprinkler systems. <laughs> the story goes on and on and on. I mean, Solomon says, I looked at that and my conclusion is this is vanity and striving after the wind. Solomon's saying that the whole idea to compete, to get ahead and stay ahead, it's a mess. So he gives two extremes. He gives two extremes. He says, I looked out there and I saw two different kind of people. First of all, in verse 5, I saw the fool who folds his hand and consumes his own flesh. And then in verse 7, he says, I looked again under the sun and I saw this guy who worked all the time and really he had nothing to do. He gained more and more and more. He was never satisfied with what he had and he labored to the point of, uh, of, of foolishness. And so you've got one fool who doesn't quit work, and you've got one fool who never works. You've got a sluggard, and you've got a workaholic. Proverbs talks about the sluggard. It says, how long will you lie there, you sluggard? When will you get up from your sleep? I mean, the sluggard is a, is a guy who he can lie on the couch, he can lie in bed, she can lie on the couch, she can lie in bed all day long. Proverbs says this, a sluggard buries his hand in his dish, he will not even bring it back to his mouth. I mean, the sluggard is a guy who, who just does that. He wants my feet. He's too lazy to do that right there. Isn't that amazing? Too lazy. And Proverbs says this about the sluggard. The sluggard is like, as a door turns on its hinges, a sluggard turns in his bed. Back and forth, back and forth, all he does is sleep and gets nothing accomplished. The sluggard. 
Sluggard's a lazy person. Let me be real frank. Some of you are lazy. Some of you are lazy. I mean, you're just lazy. Ladies, your house is a wreck because you'd rather spend all your time on Facebook, on the phone, watching TV, or at the mall. Just lazy. I'm not going back to that church, man. The pastor called me lazy. <laughs> Dudes, <laughs> you come home and caress the remote all night long. You play video games. I, I listened to Martin Driscoll last week, and he's talking about a 32-year-old guy shows up in his office, and he says, my wife has divorced me. Why? Well, she says I play video games. Well, do you? Well, I, I'm, I, I like late nights. So he, this dude was staying up like 2, 3 in the morning playing video games, wouldn't get up and go to work. 32 years old. Probably still his umbilical cord attached to his mama somewhere. <laughs> I, I, I mean... So, so, dude, some of you guys are lazy. Your yard looks like a jungle. You won't help out around the house. You're just lazy. You're a sloth. You know what a sloth looks like? That's what a sloth looks like. I, I've never seen a sloth except in a zoo. Sloth is a tropical mammal that lives most of its life hanging upside down from tree branches. It's like a hammock like a living hammock. When obliged to descend to the ground, the sloth crawls along on a level surface at the rate of 10 feet an hour. Uh, I'm sorry, 10 feet a minute, which means their top sprint is one-ninth of a mile per hour. Sloths are generally sluggish and inactive. They build no nest. They seek no shelter, even after they give birth to their young. They're too lazy to build a house for their kids. They sleep 15 to 22 hours a day. Sounds like a teenager, doesn't it? <laughs> Rising in the late afternoon to eat whatever leaves may be close by. Remember the sloth? Won't even do that. Being so passive, they are virtually untrainable, although occasionally you'll find one working in office, sitting in a church, lying on a couch watching television. <laughs> sloth. Sloth. So what's the other extreme? Well, the other extreme is a workaholic. And at TBC, that's probably where most of us fit. Hey, we, we, we just work all the time. Uh, my nature is that. Maybe that's why I can poke fun at the lazy person, because I tend to work too much. There's three things I've learned about workaholism and my own personal tendency, as well as studying others and reading about it. Number one, many of us are workaholics because we're trying to achieve and fill voids within our lives, uh, either by getting strokes or success or compliments. Hey, we're, we're, we're like a dog on a dog biscuit when somebody compliments us. We're workaholics because, uh, or one thing about workaholics, we appear successful, but oftentimes we're empty. Hey, we go to work because we get strokes there, but oftentimes we're empty. Workaholics struggle in relationships because of misplaced priorities. There's one guy who was called Mr. Can Do at work. He can do it all. He was called the Phantom at home because I never saw him. <clears throat> and I look at our congregation and recognize many of you and what you do, and you tend to err that way like I do. Solomon does give us a solution here. The solution he gives is this. Balance is better I don't know where those came from. Balance is better than burnout. 
Balance is better than burnout. If you back up to verse uh, 6, he says, One handful of rest is better than two fistfuls of labor and striving after the wind. Let me stop for a second. Some of us need to confess right now. Some of us are lazy. You confess that before God. It's wrong. Sluggard. In fact, you need to have a cardboard thing that goes around your neck saying, Sluggard, 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 sluggard. And you confess that to your kids and your wife or your husband because you don't do what you're supposed to do. Others of us need to go sinful because all we do is work. And the way we, the, the way we explain that away or rationalize it is I'm providing for my family. Hey, it's good to provide for your family. It's a good thing. But your family needs you, not just your stuff. And so there's got to be a balance there. Got to be a balance. We got a bunch of new medical students, a bunch of new residents here at TBC. It's that time of year when a lot of you visit, a lot, some of you will stay, hopefully. And, uh, boy, it's a tough time. You want to prove yourself. You've never failed anything. You certainly don't want to start right now. Uh, you you want to make a good first impression. And uh, so you're going to get after it. I'm just warning you, be careful. Be careful. Be careful. I'll never forget when I was at Dallas Seminary, one of our profs, Harold Honer, stood in front of us and said, men, some of you are sinning right now. You're making A's and you're sacrificing your family and other things to excel at seminary. And some of you are sinning because you're making C's and you've got plenty of time to study and capability, but you're not doing it. And he was so right. He was so right. You've got to find balance in the midst of it. Where is that balance and how do you honor God in the midst of that? Basically, Solomon says, don't be lazy, but don't make labor your first love. Blessed are the balanced. Then he says, men are isolated. Men are isolated. Ecclesiastes 4, 9 through 12, it talks about two being better than one. You've got a good return for your labor. If somebody falls, they pick you up. If you're cold, you lie in bed together and you get warm. And uh, it's easier to uh, overpower one than two, and three is even greater than that. In my original wedding ring, which uh, I lost somewhere along the way, it's another discussion for another day, uh, Bev had inscribed in the middle of that wedding ring Ecclesiastes 4, 9 through 12. It, it, was, it was engraved in the middle of that wedding ring. Two are better than one. It's a great passage. It's a great passage. It's not just talking about marriage. It's all talking about friendship. You're blessed if you have a friend that come alongside you to help you when you stumble, to help you when you fall. You're blessed when you have a friend that can, can come alongside you and, and assist you in life and keep you warm and, and to protect you when evil people come in verse 12. One of the greatest struggles in our society is isolation and loneliness. Isolation and loneliness. Max Lucado says, loneliness is not the absence of faces, it's the absence of intimacy. Loneliness doesn't come from being alone, it comes from feeling alone. You can sit in a crowd like this of about, probably right now, about 900 people, I'd say. And you can feel very alone. You're surrounded by people, but you feel alone. If you feel that, I pray you'll find a community, a smaller community to be a part of here at TBC. But we've all been in rooms filled with people and felt alone. Mother Teresa said this. She said, the biggest disease today is not leprosy or tuberculosis, but the feeling of being unwanted, uncared for, deserted by everybody. The greatest evil is the lack of love. You see, when you, really, when you want to punish a little kid, where do you put them? 
What do you put them in, guys? You got little kids. Time out. You make them be alone. In prison, if you want to punish somebody, where do you put them? Solitary confinement. You make them be alone. Solitude. We don't want solitude. We don't want to be alone. And when we are, when we're isolated, not only do we lack power, but we recognize it's easier to remain down when we fall and cold when it, when, when we can't get warmed up. And, and when odds come against us, we struggle. And so I encourage you to make sure that you value relationships. And I believe that's Solomon's solution here. Value relationships. Here's an assignment for you. you get somebody that comes alongside you, that loves you, cares for you, ministers to you, a spouse, a friend. This is a great week to take them to coffee, send them a note, send them a text, let them know how much you appreciate them. You're blessed if you have that. Our world is filled with lonely people. You remember the story? I've used it before. An elderly woman decided to prepare a will, told her preacher she had two final requests. First, she wanted to be cremated. Secondly, she wanted her ashes scattered across Walmart. Walmart, he said, why there? He said, then I'm sure my daughters will visit me at least twice a week. <laughs> it's funny and it's not, isn't it? It's funny and it's not. Loneliness. It's a story of the 78-year-old man who was moping through life. His wife had passed away. He felt like his only daughter was living out of another country. Uh, he lived in a village outside of Rome. He felt like his life had fallen to a dull rhythm. He wanted to do something different. He decided he would take it into his own hands to do that. Some of you need to do that. You need to find community. You need to find a place to serve. So this guy put an ad in a newspaper. It said, Sikh's family in need of a grandfather will bring 500 euros a month to a family willing to adopt him. The ad changed his life. He received over 1,000 responses. A thousand responses. That came away, it came as far away as Columbia, New Zealand, New Jersey. He became a celebrity overnight. TV shows began to interview him. Newspapers came to see him, et cetera, et cetera. Five millionaire offered servants in a seaside villa. A pop star responded. Finally, he uh, took a job. He said, the reason I took it, every member in the family wrote a note. The father, the mother, the sister, the brother, they had each signed it. He says, it's the greatest thing that's ever happened in my life. <clears throat> overcoming loneliness. You do it through a Savior. You do it through serving. You do it through community. Finally, and I'll do this quickly because fame is fleeting, popularity is temporary, and the clock is moving. A poor yet wise lad is better than an old and foolish king who doesn't listen anymore. He's come out of prison to become king, even though he was born poor in his kingdom. You see, you've got some contrast here. You've got old versus young, king versus poor, foolish versus wise. You would expect the king, the wise, to be the wiser one, but he wasn't because he doesn't listen to counsel. The younger, wise lad who's just out of prison becomes king. But what happens? I've seen all the living under the sun to the side of the second lad who replaces him. So you've got a king, guy comes out of prison, he becomes king in his place. Then a second lad comes and he takes his place. And somebody else comes and he takes his place. Solomon's shaking his head and he's saying, flame is feeding, popul- fleeting popularity is temporary. I, I, I love this statement. Fame is a vapor, popularity is an accident, money takes wings. The only thing that endures is character. It's a great statement, isn't it? You want to know the clincher? 
Guess who said it? If he'd only listened to his own words. What he said is good. What he did was wrong. Fame is a vapor. Popularity is an accident. Money takes wings. The only thing that endures? Character. As he sits in a jail cell right now. Solomon shrugs his shoulders. There's no solution given. Fame is fleeting. You know, if you win a Super Bowl, you think you have it all, don't you? You're at the top of the heap. The only thing that gets better may be winning an Olympic gold medal or or maybe a a World Cup. How many of you guys are watching the World Cup right now? Eight of you. (laughs) Sheesh. I I, I mean, you know, the Olympics, I mean, you're at the top. Super, there's, a, there's, a, there's an essay written on the history of Super Bowl ranks. It's quite interesting. I picked out just a few of them. Charlie Waters, Dallas Cowboys, had five Super Bowl rings. He left them in his home, left his home unlocked. All five of them were stolen. Joe Gilliam won two Super Bowl rings in 74 and 75 with the Pittsburgh Steelers. He pawned them off for less than $500 so he could buy heroin. Rocky Blyer, remember Rocky Blyer? Half his foot shot off, played for the Pittsburgh Steelers, great guy. He sold four rings to cover the cost of a divorce. Thomas Hollywood Henderson, there's a name from the past. He sold a Super Bowl ring, you know how? Actually, he didn't, he didn't sell it. The IRS seized it, so he'd have to pay back taxes. Mercury Marsh, remember him? Ended up in prison. He sold his ring to raise money to clear his name for drug trafficking, only to be arrested later to go to prison. Famous fleeting. So what do you do with all this? Here's my conclusion for you. Don't give up on God when life doesn't seem fair. Trust rather than despair. Don't give up. Don't give up. In the midst of the trials of life when it seems unfair. He's faithful. Where else are you going to turn? Where else are you going to go? You go to the doctor, think you're getting a new prescription of glasses. And and the result is your eye gets taken out and you've got a 30% chance to live for five years. Is that fair? Hey, it's not about fairness. It's about faithfulness. And my prayer, my prayer, is that you and I, all, you and all of us, will be found faithful, even when it may not seem fair. Don't despair. Don't despair. Trust the one who is trustworthy. Father, that's our prayer. Our prayer is that, indeed, we will be found faithful, even when things seem unfair. When things seem to be falling apart, we're grateful that you're not. When there's unfaithfulness around us, we're grateful that you're faithful. When the world seems to be headed south, we're glad that you are the true north that never changes. When bad guys win, we're grateful that you are sovereign. When innocent lives are destroyed, we're grateful that we have you to cling to. When the outcome is not good, we're grateful that we can cling to you.
Do you know Jesus? In the midst of a world that's jacked up, you get all the education this world has to offer. You can make more money than anybody else in this room. You can do more good things than anybody that walks on this planet. But unless you know Jesus as your Savior, your eternal life is uncertain. Let me back up. It's certain. But it's a certainty you don't want a part of. So I invite you this morning to make sure that Jesus is your Savior. And if he's your Savior, there are times when life does seem unfair. But I can tell you, I can tell you he's a good God that you can trust, who is trustworthy, who will walk with you through all the issues, no matter what they are. So, Father, our confession from some today is we're lazy. For some of us, we work too much. For some, we are envious of others. For some, we cling to the wrong things. For some, we're in the midst of despair rather than trust. So we make it a morning of confession, repentance, and change. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. God bless you.